Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Thank you all once again uh, for loving us. We feel humbled for the gift and we very, very much appreciate that. Um, I just want to just tag on to what's something Scott said earlier today. Um, if you are in mourning and you need some counsel because Michigan lost badly yesterday, don't call me. I don't care. No. I, one of the benefits of growing up in another state is you don't really pick a team. So just uh, so you know, we, uh, when we were um, first moving here, we had several uh, friends from different sides of the aisle, and some were pushing us to uh, be state fans, and others pushing us to be Michigan fans, and some even buy us uh, Michigan swag just to rub it in every once in a while. But uh, we decided we had to pick a uh, side, so one, one day we were like, okay, let's just flip a coin. And uh, whatever it lands on, that's what will will be in the coin landed on state. So we're officially a state family. But the moment we chose state as a family, my oldest daughter, Jocelyn, instantly picked Michigan. So we became a divided household right out the gate. And so uh, it, it just, you know, either way. So I, I'm, I'm for whoever's not winning at the time. And so uh, if uh, I go for the underdog. So that's me. So thank you for being here. For those of you that are new, I'm Pastor Joey. And uh, we welcome you here. We're in a series we're calling What in the World? Because if you've looked around, you've been on the news, you've looked at society today, it's kind of crazy. Wouldn't you agree? Like unprecedented things going on right now. Our government is telling us not to shop for Christmas because there could be shortages at the store. Has that ever happened before? Like don't, don't spend your money. They can spend all the money they want, but we can't spend our money, you know, because there might be shortages, right? This is unprecedented times in so many different ways. And so we're looking at some of these tensions in this series that are causing people to take a step back and think about what is going on, especially if you have a faith background or not. Uh, many are even looking at, are these the last days? Are we getting close to the time that Jesus is going to return? Because there's just something going on in the world that we can't put our finger on. And so we're, we're going to continue to look at and have some conversations about some of these tensions and calamities that are being unleashed across the globe and uh, some of the things that are causing people to, to really evaluate this day and time that we're living in. But it's no secret from a biblical standpoint that we've been in the last days since Jesus rose and ascended into heaven. So if you want to talk about, are we in the last days? Yes, we're in the last days because we're waiting on Jesus to come back. So these days we're in for 2,000 years can be considered the last days or the end times as we're waiting on the Messiah to return and set up his kingdom. So since the church has been preaching, we've entered into the last days. Christ will be returning soon. But with every day, every week, every month that goes by, we get closer and closer to that time where Jesus is going to return. And as we continue in history, the longer it takes for Christ to return, 
it also seems to increase skepticism about whether or not he's going to return. The longer it takes, like we, I've heard it many times, it's been 2,000 years. How much longer are you going to wait? And so that the skepticism seems to rise the longer, the closer it gets in the longer it takes. In 2 Peter chapter 3, again, 2,000 years, Peter, one of Jesus' closest apostles, uh, disciples, he writes this to the church to encourage them to hold on to their faith. He says in, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, now this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, and uh, the commandment of the Lord and Savior, Jesus, and through the apostles, the disciples of Christ that, that followed Christ, that learned everything Jesus wanted the church to do and accomplish, and they passed the teachings on to the rest of believers. So we have really three groups here, the Old Testament prophets, we have Christ himself, and then we have the New Testament apostles. In verse 3, he says, Knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, people are looking at the world and they're like, you really think Jesus is coming back? Right? Everything's been going on the same way since the beginning of time. Like, well, what's this concept of the end of days or the end of the world? Because things are just continuing on as they always have. And so what Peter is reaffirming, that what the prophets foretold prior to even the first coming of Jesus, and what Christ taught himself, what the apostles passed along, would be that in the last days, the days prior to Jesus' return, there would be an increase in scoffers and skeptics. They'd be incredibly skeptical that Jesus would not only even return, but whether or not he even came in the first place. The apostle John in his letter said there's a spirit of antichrist. Those that deny Jesus came in the flesh are under a spirit of antichrist, this, this scoffer spirit. And in our day and age, there is actually a growing movement of people that are following what's considered the new atheism, or um, in the intellectual realm, in the collegiate and university level, there are uh, groups that, that are going into this, what they call the concept of the search for the historical Jesus. What they're really doing is they're trying to disprove whether or not Jesus ever came to begin with. They're trying to find ways to look at history through and look through the writings to just disprove it altogether because they don't believe Jesus ever came to begin with. And this is very popular among modern movements. So there is a rise in our culture of scoffers in our day and time. Doubting Jesus will return at all. And this is a sign that we've been told in Scripture is a sign of the times. But on the flip side, we look at the national and world events. These are also waking people up to the reality that Jesus could come back at any time. So as you have an increase in skepticism, you also have an increase in hope that Jesus is coming back. 
So it seems something new is revealed in our world through prophetic significance that is confirming the very things the Bible said would happen at the signs of his return. If you look at all the stuff going on, some of the things we've been talking about, and even just things on the world stage, we can look at what's happening today and say that some things are perfectly in alignment with what Jesus said what the world would be like when he returned. So when Jesus was teaching before his crucifixion, his disciples were expecting him to set up what's called the messianic kingdom or the kingdom of God on earth. And so they asked Jesus, like, what is going to be the sign of your return when you come back and set up this kingdom? And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus kind of opens up the windows of time and kind of reveals to the disciples what the world will be like, what's going to be happening in the world around the time of his return, the time that he's going to set up the kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 24, here's what Jesus says to his disciples, beginning in verse 4. It says, And Jesus answered them and says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must first take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Somebody say birth pains. The beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So there is really so much to unpack here. We're not going to get into all of the things Jesus said uh, but just a few things to note in verse 7, he says, this, these are the beginning of the birth pains. Any woman who has ever given birth to a child can relate to what Jesus is trying to communicate here. In the beginning of the labor process, when contractions begin, they're mostly, from what I'm told, mostly moderate, right? And not real severe. It's like, oh, that's new. Something, something's happening. Something's going on. But what, what's happening in the body is the contractions are moving the, the child into position and it's preparing the woman's body to go through the process of birth. And the, the, the more it's conditioned to be uh, ready to give birth to this child, the harder, the faster, and the stronger the contractions get until the point the baby is born. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there will be these signs but these signs are the beginning of the birth pains. They might be few and far between. But as it gets closer to the time of my return, you're going to see this more. You're going to see it with greater intensity until the very point the new life in the kingdom of God takes place. So things aren't going to get better and better and better. They're going to become more and more chaotic on the planet, across the whole world. If we look at these contractions, he says wars and rumors of wars. Some could even say cold wars. 
We have wars on many different fronts. We have, we have technological wars with, with internet and hacking. We've got wars uh, with the, the economy. We've got threats of war between nations. We've got China now sending intercontinental missiles into outer space and doing all these things that are, that are kind of posturing for war. We can look at famines and earthquakes. In Luke's parallel passage in the book of Luke, it even includes pestilence, which is uh, disease. And, and we can look at COVID-19 and see how unprecedented that's been in our history. There have been many um, sicknesses and pandemics that have been scary across the time of history. Like in the recent years, we've had Ebola. Remember when Ebola was a thing? Like it started to rise. It came over, I think, in Texas. There are a few people in Texas and Florida that had it. They were quarantining them. And the potential that Ebola could break out was, was in the news all over the place. But it died down. You have the bird flu and the swine flu and all these different types of flus that were uh, kind of scary. And we thought maybe this might uh, go across the world. But COVID-19 really was the first of its kind to not just come across the world, but also wreck everybody's economy, cause the whole world to go into lockdown in fear of what this sickness might do. And this is just the beginning of the birth pains. So thinking of these things as birth pains, it means things will not only increase, but they'll also get closer together. And more intense. These things are outside of our control and influence. They're in the hand of God. But the signs I want to focus on today, what Jesus lists next, is not just about what's going to happen in the world cosmically through the weather and whatnot. It's about how people are going to relate to each other. In Matthew 24, 10 through 12, here's what he says. He says, And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. Heavenly Father, God, I just ask you right now in Jesus' name, as we are looking at the signs of the times, as we're looking at what is going on in the world, God, may we not bury our heads looking down, but may we lift our eyes to the sky in preparation for the salvation of our souls. Jesus, you said when you see these things, look up because your redemption draws nigh. And so I pray, God, that it would not be fear, but hope that it would arise in this place today. And I pray, God, that you would open our hearts, make our hearts like good soil, ready to receive the seed of the word, that the truths that you have to declare would plant deeply, that in these last days we could live righteously and holy and continue to advance the cause of the kingdom of God. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, God, that through the Holy Spirit you would draw and lead them to faith in Christ today, that today they could find new life in Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so we're digging in. In the last days, many will fall away. The apostle Paul wrote to the church of Thessal Thessalonica in the book of Thessalonians about these same things. Prior to the one world leader that's going to come to power, the one we call the Antichrist, that there will be this lawlessness that's increased in the world. And part of that lawlessness is a falling away. The Greek word where we get falling away is also where we get the word apostasy. 
So this word, what it means is it's a turning away from what one previously believed and thought. And if we look at society, what, what are we seeing? We're seeing a turning away from what people previously thought and believed in many aspects of society. It's no secret that in America that, that it's becoming increasingly secular. We're talking about a rise in skepticism. America's becoming increasingly secular. A poll done by Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Research found that 52% of Americans believe Jesus was merely a good teacher and not the divine son of God. If you think about our world today and our society and our culture, that makes sense. Right? If we're becoming increasingly secular, it makes sense that people would believe, more people than not, would believe Jesus was just another guy and not the divine son of God. But if you think about how our nation founded as a Christian nation, where the majority of people believed Jesus was divine, was the son of God, it is a falling away from what we as a nation once thought and believed. Over half of the population believe that Jesus was just a good man as compared to 36% of the nation who believes he's divine. So that's not really a shock, but when a poll was done by the same group of, of evangelical Christians, that would comprise most of us here in this room, believers in Christ who go to church regularly, hear the Bible taught, who, who would profess a faith in Jesus, the same found that 66% believe that Jesus is divine. That's probably a good thing, right? That most of us believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, that, that's what we would believe. But they also found that 30%, one-third of evangelical Christians don't even believe Jesus was the Son of God. That's the core essential of the gospel, that Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect sinless Son of God, came to earth, gave himself as a ransom for sin, that he died, was buried, and rose again to the glory of God the Father. And those who want to be born again must repent of their sin and turn to God through Jesus Christ by placing their faith and trust in Jesus. That's the core of the gospel. And a third of people who are Christians in our nation today don't even believe that truth. It's a departure. In our culture, we've discussed the last few weeks, we are being taught and trained to rethink of ourselves in new ways. We once believed our nation, as a nation we were a city on a hill, a light for all mankind, that America was was the new and great light for the world. We were taught to be patriots who loved our nation, and now we're being taught that America is systematically evil. We should hate our country, and it needs to be fundamentally transformed. In our cultures, we've discussed, we've looked at there are more polarizing issues now more than ever. Groups and factions are forming and rising to the surface from the LGBTQ movement, socialist Marxist groups, Antifa, the Proud Boys, the leftists, the alt-right, Christian conservatives versus Christian liberals, the new atheists, the old atheists, pro-lifers, pro-choicers, pro-vaxxers, anti-vaxxers. And in 2010, if you think about COVID-19, in 2010, we're talking about betraying and hating one another, 
our federal government for the first time in an article in the Washington Times. It was entitled, Americans are asked to snitch on each other during the coronavirus crisis. That the government was actually saying, spy on your neighbors if they're not social distancing and following protocol, report them to the government. Betray your neighbors. It's the first time that I could find in history where we did anything like that. We're being divided now more than ever. And we can see this with, uh, even with people who love really good music and people who love country music. <laughs> I hate country music. <laughs> Ugh. Right? But we're being polarized. And our culture is not doing anything but fanning it into flame. And there is one major source of influence, I think, in our day that is causing through indoctrination, and, and it's not just on our university campuses or in our public school education. There, there is something that we're all connected to that is fanning the flame of division in our nation. And I want to show you just a brief video from a clip from a discussion between Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Haidt. They're both psychologists and, and authors. They're best-selling authors in their field of social science and psychology. And in this interview, it's called The Enlightenment in the Righteous Mind. They're discussing how morality has formed through uh, the history, through the different nations and cultures, and how we've gotten to the point where we are as a nation and in our culture with morality. And they're discussing uh, really what is influencing this division and really hatred towards one another in our culture. And I think it's really interesting. I just want to show it to you, and then we'll, we'll pick back up our discussion. Let me ask you about that. So you just made the case, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that or we seem to agree on the case that because of this absence of a higher value, whatever it happens to be, that's fallen down into the political domain, and then the quasi-religious impulses that are infiltrating the, the mm -hmm. political domain tend to pit one side against another. So you get a, a good versus evil narrative emerge, but the problem with the good versus evil narrative is that the evil is embodied in some other group and the good is embodied in your group. So one of the things I've been thinking through is that, you know, in sophisticated literature, you don't have good guys and bad guys. You have good guys and bad guys in the same soul. And That's the so, Solzhenitsyn oh, quote, yes. Oh, right, exactly, exactly. And you see that in sophisticated literature. Everyone knows that. So, so here's a thought. So if you don't have a abstract religious system that insists that the dividing line between good and evil is to be fought inside your own soul, so to speak, then it degenerates one step into a battle between good and evil in the outside world with evil being conveniently located somewhere else. So, I mean, one of the things I think that Christianity did bring the world and had its roots in Jewish thinking as well was that the greatest of evils was to be found within, not without. And maybe that's one way of protecting society from this schismatic tendency that we see ah. reemerging. So why do you single out 2012? So 2009 is when Facebook added the like button and Twitter added the retweet button. And before then, social media was not particularly polarizing. People would put up a Friendster page or a MySpace page or a Facebook page with what they liked and here's, here's who I am, not polarizing at all. And then uh, in 2009, you get... Uh, the like button and then the retweet button and then Twitter and Facebook copy each other very quickly. So now both platforms have both like and retweet. 
now both platforms have huge amounts of information about engagement. And now they can algorithmicize all the feeds. And so as it's more engaging, this is the two or three years where, uh, at least adolescents, I have data, or, you know, data from national surveys showing this is the two years when adolescents go from mostly not being on these platforms every day to now teen social life is mostly conducted on, on various platforms. So do you think that's, so are you characterizing that as a positive feedback loop, essentially? Uh, the, yes, the like buttons a, with the algorithms? Yes, exactly. It's a feedback loop, and it's also the most powerful, uh, not Pavlovian, it's a just behaviorist, behaviorist conditioning mechanism ever. Opera, thank you, thanks, Steve. Opera, Opera, yes, yeah. I, used, I haven't taught Psych 101 in 10 years. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, you know, if you, it, many people have seen that video of B.F. Skinner training a pigeon to turn into a circle by just reinforcing slightly mm -hmm. more clockwise behaviors, counterclockwise behaviors in the video. And if you think about it, as soon as, as, soon as someone gets on social media and they post something, um, now people are giving them little reinforcements. And so, and it's within seconds. I mean, people, you post something and then sometimes you check within a minute, what, what did people think about it? And so we have, um, uh, so this is why, uh, so th these are ideas that I developed with Tobias Rose Stockwell. We had an article in the Atlantic on uh, why everything's going, hay why democracy is going haywire or something like that. Um, well, the positive feedback loop idea is really interesting too, because a lot of psychopathologies are positive feedback loops. So if you get depressed and you start isolating yourself because you're depressed, you get more depressed. If right. you drink alcohol and go into withdrawal and then drink to cure that, you become alcoholic. If you are agoraphobic and you avoid, you get more afraid. Like a lot of psychopathological processes are positive feedback loops. And so the Perfect. combination of the algorithm with the like that's we don't know what these technologies are doing to us. We don't have a clue. We have no well, sense whatsoever. Well, we have some whatsoever. clues, and it's okay. pretty much all bad. Um, so, yes, we get that feedback loop that now, now you can have, have the, the echo chambers and bubbles. If, if you're prone to extremist politics on either side, you now, because based on what you like or what YouTube videos you watch, that sucks you down into more extreme ones and into a community. So the algorithms are doing two things. They're picking our friends because they're going... They say, you should meet this person because the people you know meet him. So the algorithms are making our friends uh, different from what they used to be. And the algorithms are making what we watch and consume different. Um, and, and in some ways, that's good because we, it's things that we enjoy. But the, one of the problems for a liberal democracy, as the founding fathers mm -hmm. knew, is faction, factionalism. People mm -hmm. become so focused on defeating the other side, they lose sight, they lose concern for the common good. So what I thought was interesting is they talked about social media becoming a feedback loop. What Dr. Peterson said is that when someone becomes depressed, when they isolate themselves, they become even more depressed because they're working against going into health. And it just reinforces that isolation, reinforces the, the mental and psychological damage that's already been done. And what people with ideologies are doing in our culture and, and what we're doing naturally, just being on social media or with these like buttons and the algorithms that tailor our content to us, is we are insulating ourselves with this personalized content. And so now younger people are threatened by people with opposite positions. So our culture that it can't even handle uh, discourse in debate any longer uh, because we have so isolated ourselves from other positions psychologically and we're not equipped to handle someone disagreeing. And so what happened in university campuses now is they developed something that they call a safe space. 
So whenever a, a different um, opinion or a different point of view is presented and it makes you uncomfortable to the point of some type of emotional or psychological dysfunction, you can go to this safe space and be safe from the opposing opinion or point of view. So I think one of, one of the things that's been detrimental to the, the mind of the youth of our nation in coddling the mind of the youth of the nation is this idea of safe space where we're keeping people separated from one another who don't align or agree. And the last time I heard or was in school, I thought segregation was a bad idea. Because when you segregate, you now isolate, and now you're reinforcing what they already believe in and have been indoctrinated to believe is true. And so when we look at this from a biblical lens or a perspective, we have an enemy, and the enemy's plan is to steal, kill, and destroy. And how he does that is through dividing and conquering. Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. And so he's dividing and conquering people. He's doing it online. He's doing it through public education and at the university level and on into politics. And so we're being divided and we don't even know it. And it's being orchestrated by the people who are in power who run these social media groups. In ancient times, when Israel was facing exile into Babylon because they had, they had wandered away from God, they'd forsaken their covenant, they'd broken the laws, they were in active rebellion, they didn't regard God, God continued to raise up prophets to call the nation back, to call them to repentance, but also communicate his heart that it wasn't just judgment he wanted to pour out, that he wanted to bless the nation. He wanted to show them his goodness, but they had to return to the Lord before he would be able to pour out his goodness. And the prophet Hosea, in the book of Hosea, was given a word from God to the nation of Israel to describe why they were facing destruction and not blessing. And it applies to what we see in our day today. As Peter said, look at the prophets and look at what happened back then and what they foretold. And you can see what the world is going to be like and why we're headed towards calamity and not blessing. In Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse for with you is my contention, O priest." You shall stumble by day. The prophet shall also stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. The nation was called to be a nation of priests to God. And so he's speaking to them collectively. You, O oh priest, who's supposed to lead the world into the goodness of God. I'm rejecting you as my priest because you have wandered away. In with you is filled with sin and violence. Verse 7, he says, The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. So I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. And I will punish them for the ways and repay them for their 
deeds. What's interesting in this, in this text, in this passage, is he says why they're being destroyed. He says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Not because they weren't going to school and getting their high school diplomas and their college degrees. They were destroyed for a lack of knowledge of God. They didn't know the truth of who God was, what he was like, what he wanted from the people. They, they, their, their understanding of the relationship they had with God was completely gone. So what was robbing them of the blessings they could have from God was the lack of knowledge of God that was contributing to their unfaithfulness. And also their lack of steadfast love. You see, as love decreased, sin increased. And lawlessness abound. Well, why is that? Because Jesus said the two greatest commandments are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. They're interconnected. When you stop loving God, you are unable to truly love other people. And the less you respect God, the less you will respect the people around you. The further away we get from knowing God as a nation, the less love we will express. And as love diminishes lawlessness will increase. And where do we see that? We see that in all the hatred and vitriol we see between groups and classes all over the world and in our nation. The further we've gotten away from our founding principles of this Christian nation, the faith of, as a nation, that we were endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, with, with dignity, that there's value for every human life. The more we get away from those founding principles, the more hatred and division will become evident in society. You see, we don't value human life anymore in this nation. And we no longer know or respect the creator of human life. We don't value human life because we don't respect the creator of human life. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, one of the signs of the times would be that the love of many would grow cold. Why does it grow cold? It's because they lack the knowledge of God. And here we see in Israel, when they lack the knowledge of God, so did their love for one another. And what's interesting to me in verse 9 here in Hosea chapter 4, God says to the prophet, in Hosea 4.9, it shall be like people, like priests. And I will punish them for the ways and repay them for their deeds. Like people, like priests. Not like priests, like people. But like people, like priests. It's not that people will become like the leaders they elect. It's that the leaders they elect will reflect the way the people already are. A priest is not just a spiritual leader. He is a spiritual influencer. But the thing about priests is that God is not the only one who had priests historically. Every God has their own priests. Every idol, every false God had their own temple with their own priests that would minister among the people. And so what Hosea is saying, he's not saying that the priests will lead the masses, but more so the masses are choosing priests to suit themselves. And Paul reinforces this idea in 2 Timothy chapter 4, teaching on the last days, just like what Jesus warned us about in Matthew 24. He's writing to his protege, Timothy, that prior to the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, there are things that are going to be taking place. And this is how, not just what's going to happen, but here is how you deal with it as a believer. Here's what you do. Here's how you respond 
Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Verse 2, he says, preach the word. Somebody say, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth, wander off into myths. And as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." So he's talking to Timothy about the last days, and he says, the last days, people, they're, they're not going to endure sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? It's healthy teaching. It's what's going to build up, not tear down. It's gonna, what's going to lead to the goodness of God and not to the destruction of a nation. And we're already seeing this all over our nation and the world with different agendas and ideologies being pressed and pushed in the nation. And, and people don't want to hear opposing opinions anymore, that we have different voices go to the campuses. And if they don't fit the narrative, you have protests that shut down the speeches or the debates because of the painful speech and the violation of the safe space. They're wanting things that are contrary to what is good. I mean, look at the abortion agenda. People are actually advocating the rights of mothers to kill their babies. So save the whales, but kill the children. Save the whales, but kill the children. It's unhealthy teaching. We don't love each other. We don't value human life anymore. Why? Because we don't respect the God who created life. And this is the world that we're in. They have itching ears. Secondly, Paul says, with itching ears, they not only don't want to hear healthy teaching, but they want teaching that's contrary to that teaching, teaching that satisfies their lusts. The word lust denotes what is forbidden or contrary to what is good and moral. So if you think about what we're doing, we're not just going away from God, we're trying to run from God. We're trying to get as far away from God, morality, faith, biblical, objective morality as far as possible. Today, in the new atheism, people are arguing for the fact that, that you don't need a divine being to establish objective morality. We can just choose uh, well-being as objective morality. The problem is, is that well-being is subjective to whoever is looking at well-being. My well-being might require your not well-being. So it's... Not logical. But just like in Hosea, just as Israel did before they were sent into exile, the nation was destroyed. The people didn't want objective truth. They wanted subjective morality. They didn't want people to challenge what they think. They wanted to cancel the opposition to remove their ability to speak. And so what did they do? They elected teachers who would just tell them what they wanted to hear. Just tell me what I want to hear. Don't challenge me. Agree with me. And what did those teachers do? They led them into myths, things that were categorically untrue. Like some of the agendas and ideologies that we were looking at. We talked about the transgender movement. It is scientifically impossible for you to change your gender. You cannot be born a male and turn into a female. It's impossible. It's a myth. But yet that's the ideology and the agenda that's being pressed and pushed in our nation. 
social media is creating the feedback loop and providing the space, safe space that reinforces what people wanted to hear, causing the youth of our nation to act in extreme hatred and volition to those who oppose their beliefs. It's unlike anything we've seen. Yeah, there's always been protests, but we are at another level. And this is why we're told time and time again in Scripture, especially in the last days, that believers are going to face persecution. Why are you going to face persecution? Because when you stand against the narrative, you become the enemy. When you stand against the narrative, when you push back against the agenda, you're going to become the enemy. And so in the last days, you will be persecuted. Your voice will either be canceled, and one day you may even be killed for your faith. And this is the environment we're in and where we're heading. This is where we're going. Paul says back in chapter 3 of Timothy, just like the birth pangs in Matthew 24, 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Beloved, things are not going to get better. Get that out of your mind. It's not going to get better. That's wishful thinking. I know there are people that think, oh, the next great revival is going to come and it's going to be like the golden age on the world. It's not going to happen. Bible gives us a different story. There might be a revival, but it's going to be in the midst of persecution and suffering. It's going to get from bad to worse. We're, we're getting closer and closer. The birth pains have been going since Jesus ascended into heaven. The closer it gets, the harder, the faster, the worse, and the stronger it's going to be. We need to ready our hearts and our spirits to stand with our faith. We will be persecuted. So what do we do as believers to wade through these times and remain faithful so our love doesn't grow cold. This is, this is the danger we have in times like this as we look at issues in the book of Revelation. Jesus rebukes the church of Ephesus who's standing against everything that's wrong in, the, in their culture, but he rebukes them. He says, but I have one thing against you. You lost your first love. You lost the love for God and the love you have for other people. It's easy to lose your love when you're constantly fighting battles. So we need to guard our love, continue to love God with all we are and love our neighbor as ourselves and yet still remain faithful in this day and time as we get closer to the return of Christ. So what do we do? He continues in verse 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture, somebody say all scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Here's what Paul's telling Timothy. He's saying in the last days, as things not only are bad, but they get worse and worse and worse. As persecution arises, as it gets, becomes very difficult to be a believer and stay true to your faith, here's what he tells them. Number one, hold fast to what you were taught. Hold fast. Hold on to it. 
Don't, don't be swayed by all the agendas and the different doctrines being passed around. Hold fast to what you were taught in the faith. Recognize that our foundation for what we believe is found in the Holy Scriptures. It's found in the Word of God. It's the foundation for everything we believe. There will be a tendency or a, a, an, an urge to fall away in the last days. And I got a text message from my mom uh, last night that there was a United Methodist Church in her city that's breaking away from the mainline denomination not because of some of the things we might think, but because of their beliefs about the death and resurrection of Jesus. The fundamentals of the gospel of Christ, they're breaking away because they've violated the very doctrine that's essential for the Christian faith. So there is going to be temptation. There's going to be things that try to pull us away. And Paul's saying, hold fast to what you were taught because it involves the salvation of your soul. The Word of God is where we go to discover who we are, how we should live and believe. It's where we go to discover what is true and find the tools to accomplish the very thing God wants us to do. Number two, he says in 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the Word. Hold fast to what you've been taught. But number two, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. That means always be ready to testify for Christ. Always be ready to stand up for what's true. Always be ready to be an ambassador for Jesus, to share the gospel, to be light in the darkness. And how do we do that? We reprove, we rebuke. We say, hey, that's wrong. Don't do that. That's harmful. But we also exhort, say, do this. It will be your good. Find Christ. It will radically transform your life. And he says, do it with complete patience and teaching. That means we're not doing it out of anger or out of uh, malice, but we're doing it out of patience, knowing that it took us a minute before we were ready to give our lives to Christ. This might take somebody else a minute before they're ready to give their lives to Christ. But we preach the truth in love. Be in season and out of season. Be ready. Number three, he says in 2 Timothy 4, 5, he says, as for you... Always be sober-minded. Somebody say sober-minded. Sober-minded. What's that mean? It means don't be drunk. If you think of an alcoholic, somebody who's drunk, they're not in control of their faculties. They can't make rational decisions. He's saying don't be drunk. He says in another passage, don't be drunk with wine where it's in an excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? This sober-mindedness gives you that idea that we need to not have our minds so filled with noise, propaganda, agenda, drama, that we can't discern the voice of the Holy Spirit. That rather than having our ears in politics and in, the, in, in getting consumed with what's going on in social media, we should have our mind, our eyes in the Word of God. We should be listening to the Holy Spirit. Turn off the noise and tune in to the Spirit of God. Because it's in the Word of God that we are able to find what's just, right, what's moral, what's true, and to think on the things that God wants us to think about. Number four, he says, endure suffering. Endure it. Don't avoid it. Endure it. Our tendency in this day and age is to try to be as comfortable as possible. But there's a time coming when for, in order for you to live out your Christian faith, you're not going to be able to be comfortable. And you're going to have to decide, do I follow Jesus 
Do I lay my life down? Do I pick up my cross? Or do I go the other way? And he's saying, endure it. Because the mission is more important than my misery. The mission of Christ, the kingdom of God, is more important than my temporary misery. You know what's greater than temporary misery? Eternal glory. There is a glory coming on the other side. There's a glory coming in eternity that's far greater than any temporary misery we may go through. Be sober-minded, endure suffering. Number five, do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist is a bringer of good tidings. The word gospel means good news. What Jesus did for us was good news, amen? That's good news. You mean I don't gotta do anything to get to heaven? I just gotta receive Jesus as my savior and repent of my sin? Trust him with my life? Yeah, that's it? Yeah, that's pretty good. Because I've done some stuff. I've made some mistakes. I mean, no one can get to heaven on their own? Nope, but Jesus took care of it. That's good news. It's really good news. An evangelist, we get in our mind, what is an evangelist? An evangelist is a bringer of good news. It's good news. We can't forget that in the last days, there will be a rise of lawlessness, which means a diminishing of love. A lack of love is a result of the lack of knowledge of God. What an evangelist does, an evangelist isn't the protester on the side of the road with the sign that says, God hates gays. That's not an evangelist. An evangelist is a person who goes out to reveal the heart of God to those who are far from him. Amen. To show the love of God, that the kindness of God is what draws people to repentance, that shows Jesus to people. We share the good news, spread the knowledge of God so love can be on display in the hearts of his people. To show people there's a God who created you, a God who loves you, a God who has good plans for you. So turn away from the destructive things that you're doing and give him your heart and your life and you can be born again. You can find new life. See, as the children of God, we have a mission with a good message that people need to hear. That's why this last year we started doing City Walk in the park where we gathered for prayer. We just asked God, God, tell us who and tell us where and we'll go. You want to believe it was uncomfortable to walk up to random strangers to talk about Jesus? Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. But the encounters were worth it. The people we met, the friendships we made, the opportunity to pray and minister to people in a low moment, to confirm callings on people, to see people get healed. It's worth it. It's worth every second. To let God's love shine brightly. So how do we respond in dark times? You do the work of an evangelist. Number six, you fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your assignment. God had plans for you before he created the foundation of the world. If you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, you have an assignment. He has a mission for you. Where do you work? That's your mission field. Where do you find yourself? That's your mission field. Where do you shop for groceries? Where do you go hang out on the weekends? Where do you vacation? That is your mission field. He has an assignment for you. And here Paul tells Timothy, fulfill your assignment. Fulfill your ministry. What Paul did not say was in the last days when it gets bad, you need to hunker down in your doomsday bunker 
that you've been preparing for the last 20 years and escape from the world. He didn't say that. He said, get out in the world and reveal Jesus to him. Fulfill your assignment. Show people that Jesus is alive and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have a mission. The early church was riddled with factions just as we see today. And they struggled to hold on to love. Matter of fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When there are factions, and there are factions in our society, people are choosing sides. There may be even factions that arise in a church, God forbid. But when they do, it's not an opportunity to fight with one another. It's an opportunity to show others how to do it right. That genuine believers will hold fast to the word of God. They'll be ready at all times to share the truth. They'll endure persecution for holding on to what they believe. They'll be sober-minded, being in the word and not in the world. They're not going to be overwhelmed or led astray by controversy. They'll be pursuing love, working as an evangelist as they faithfully fulfill their assignment, as they spread the good news of Christ wherever God leads them. As the days get darker, it's our opportunity to shine even brighter. So beloved, in this divided world, be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. And one of the things that we want to do in this series is we want to end our time in prayer. So we can get the prayer music going. As we look at how divided this world is, it's easy to get wrapped up in the drama. Very easy. But as believers in Christ, we have a greater calling and a greater mission. And Jesus said, my house shall be known as a house of prayer. Prayer is incredibly powerful. You believe that? You believe prayer has the power to bring down strongholds, to release miracles. Prayer is how we commune with God. It's how we partner with God. It's how we hear God's voice. And so I believe in this season, as we're looking at what's wrong in the world, God wants to raise us up to intercede for it. And so for the next few moments, as we just go into a time of prayer, I want us as the church to pray with one another about all the hate that's going on in the world, all the different groups, all the different factions, that God would first cleanse our heart and life from anything we're harboring against anyone else, whether it be political, spiritual. And God would help us to return to that first principle of first love, loving God with all we are in our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus, God gave a promise to Israel in the Old Testament. He said, if you find yourselves in exile, you've been kicked out of the land. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I'll hear from heaven and I'll cleanse their land. If we want to see a revival, we want to see a move of God in our nation, it begins with us as the people of God, confessing our sins before him and returning to the Lord, asking God to fill us with his spirit, fill us with love for other people and having the faith to step out and love other people as we point them to Jesus.
So let's begin with our hearts. God, help us get off the drama on social media, worrying about he said, she said, who said, whatever. What this person in the government's doing or what this person's not doing, how this person hurt my feelings or how I'm not being affirmed over here. And God, help me focus on what your word says. That in this day and time, I'm a light. I'm your vessel. You've called me as an evangelist, someone to bring good news, not to debate over drama, but to bring good news. Lord, the gospel is good news. And often we can't give away what we've not first received. Jesus, you said to those who have been forgiven much will love much. And maybe some of us have a hard time with loving because we don't recognize how much we've really been forgiven. So Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Reveal the love of God. Show us how we've been forgiven. Break off all the pride that has been hardening our hearts towards other people, other groups. And help us to love unconditionally as we've been loved. And then when we take our stand, it's not in hate, it's not in anger, it's not in frustration. It's in concern. It's in compassion. It's like Jesus who spoke to the woman and says, I don't condemn you, but don't go and keep doing what you're doing. It's equal grace and truth. And I pray Jesus today that you'd begin by reviving your church. And I just thank you for this time of prayer. As we intercede on behalf of our nation, the youth of our nation, that God, through your power and through your truth and your great love, you could begin breaking down walls and bringing us back together, beginning with the church of Jesus Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.